Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. In this episode, we feature a conversation with Heather McGee. For nearly two decades, McGee has been involved in the fight against inequality by designing and advocating for policies in the public and private sectors. She has advised presidential candidates and Fortune 500 companies, testified in Congress, and led the think tank Demos, which argued before the Supreme Court and helped pass pro-voter reforms in five states. In 2021, McGee published her first book, The Sum of Us, what racism costs everyone and how we can prosper together, which became an instant national bestseller. In this conversation with author and journalist Anand Giridadas, McGee tells a social and political history of the 20th century in America that explains how and why we've arrived at this particular moment in the fight for social justice. Nothing that is happening now should be surprising in light of McGee's narrative. At the center of her argument, is that racism hurts all of us and is rooted in a zero-sum psychology in which one person's gain is another's loss. She points to alternative ways of community building in which collective contributions uplift all citizens, be that in healthcare, education, or civic life. This event was originally presented by West by Midwest, a collaboration between Black Mountain Institute, Literary Arts, The Lofts Wordplay, and the Wisconsin Book Festival. Here's our moderator, Anand Giridadas. Hi, Heather. Hi, I'm so excited to be in this conversation. I am too. Um, we start tonight with the question, why can't we have nice things? And I wanna ask you that question and what you mean by it in a minute. But I, I, I just wanna say to the audience, welcome. Um, it's one of the silver linings of COVID is that there can actually be a book event bringing together four different institutions in four different parts of the country, representing four different troubled racial histories uh, to talk about these issues. And there's something very exciting about that. Um, so Heather, you begin by asking, begin the book by asking, why can't we have nice things? What are the nice things you mean? Who is we? And why in a nutshell, can't we have them? Well, thank you so much, Anand, for this conversation, um, for the conversation we had early on in my book tour, um, for your wonderful uh, Substack newsletter, which everyone should subscribe to, The Inc. Thank you so much, Anand, for being um, part of this evening tonight. Thank you to the sponsoring organizations. Thank you. I know that there are a lot of people that I know, particularly in Madison, Wisconsin. I wanted to say hello to them. Um, this is a really exciting night for me. Um, because the way that I came into this conversation and into my career was with an obsession over these issues of inequality that I know are near and dear to your heart, Anand. So I'm really just looking forward to this conversation. So nice things. 
You know, um, what I mean when I open the book saying, have you ever wondered why we can't seem to have nice things? Um, I did not mean self-driving cars, which I don't think we need. I did not mean laundry that does itself, which I could really use. Um, I meant things like universal childcare and universal healthcare, public health system to handle pandemics, world-class infrastructure that's reliable and modern to keep the heat and power on when predictable storms come through in the era of climate change. I mean, wages that keep people out of poverty. Those are the nice things. And when I say we can't have nice things, I actually mean, all Americans, both the people of color who are disproportionately uninsured and in poverty and suffering from environmental collapse and degradation, but also white Americans who are the largest group of all of those afflicted um, categories. And so this, why we can't have nice things after nearly 20 years of trying to bring economic research and the sort of tools of the think tank advocacy trade to the problems was what set me out on a three-year journey to write The Sum of Us. And what I discovered along the way um, was that the biggest impediment to our progress as a nation is a zero-sum worldview that is held disproportionately by white people, um, less so by people of color. But it's this worldview that says that a dollar in my pocket must mean a dollar out of yours. It means that progress for people of color has to come at the expense of white people. And it, what it leads to is a fracturing of the collective will to win the kinds of nice things that we all need. The writer, Michael Lewis, um, great nonfiction writer, has this line that I love, which is writers write books because they feel the world has fundamentally misperceived a particular thing. Mm. And each book is an attempt to correct that particular misperception. So in this case, what is the misperception that you are trying to help us fix? Oh, that's great. Um, so I think the misperception is that zero sum paradigm. Um, you know, I do not believe that progress for people of color has to come at white people's expense. The economic data bears it out. But fundamentally, the, the centrality of that zero sum worldview also leads to another logic that often bedevils people who want a more unified America, who want to see racial and social justice, which is the idea that racism exclusively harms people of color. And that's where I wanted to widen the aperture and tell the whole truth of the whole story of this country's original sin and how creating a society that believed in and practiced a hierarchy of human value and the fallacious idea that we are divisible from one another and that our fates are not ultimately linked has haunted this country's progress. And that in fact, when you count through a hundred different measures, the impacts, the burden, the tally of the cost of racism, really very few people are spared. When I was reading the book, the thing that really opened my eyes was this notion of white supremacy as almost this kind of special currency, non-financial currency that this society has minted to distribute solely to white people uh -huh. in lieu of giving white people and everybody actual stuff. Can you talk about that dynamic of lowered expectations that you talk about in this book? The, the, the way in which white supremacy becomes this kind of like racial Bitcoin that I feel like if I have that, then I guess it's fine that I don't have an actually functioning society. That's right, that's right. 
So I can answer that question by telling a story of when I went to, which is I think newly relevant as we look at the fight to, to organize in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, the Amazon warehouse. I went to Mississippi to outside of Jackson, which by the way is going now two weeks without running water, um, which I feel like I should take every opportunity to call attention to. Um, so I went to a Nissan factory outside of, of Jackson, Mississippi, right in the wake of a failed union organizing drive that had been 10 years in the making. And I sat with workers and talked to them about why it was that they voted, a majority of the workers eligible to vote in the plan, voted against organizing into a union. Now I'm from Chicago, I'm from the Midwest. So I know sort of like in my bones that unionized manufacturing jobs, particularly auto factory jobs are like the prize of the American economy. And so the idea of someone willingly saying, nah, that's fine. I'd rather have lower wages, more precarious healthcare and retirement benefits, no job security, no voice on the job to bargain for more safety precautions. It, it was just something that I felt like I had to tease out. And what I learned from the workers there, white and black for the union and against, was that what W.B. Du Bois in his amazing book, Black Reconstruction in the South called the wages of whiteness, the psychological wage that is a promise of elevated status were actually more important to the workers at the plant, particularly the white workers who overwhelmingly voted against the union than the taste of real material wages. And after my first day there, I went back to the hotel room where I was staying and I was kind of rattled because, you know, coming from my Midwestern perspective, I thought that it would be clearer that white workers should have voted for the union. But the whole first day, all I heard about was the little perks, what they called the buddy-buddy system, the idea that sort of who you hunt with matters more than your work ethic. The idea that there was sort of this invisible line of hierarchy at the plant that white workers so often got moved quickly off the assembly line and into the what the workers called the cush jobs. Um, one guy said, you can tell how cush the job is because the white guys can go straight from work to the happy hour. They don't have to go home and shower, right? So there was this idea that being white actually meant a better deal at the plant. So why would they give that up? And then I had to sit with it and remember, oh, right. You know, just because you've got like somebody who's got a coat in a cold room and the person next to them doesn't have the coat. Yes, they've got a coat in a cold room. They are definitely better off than the guy with no coat. But if the two of them joined together, put their shoulder in and pushed open the door and walked out into the sun, everybody would be warmer. And that to me felt like the thing that it's so easy to lose perspective of in an economy with such whipsawing economic vicissitudes, this idea that in fact, there is a higher floor for everyone, but what we're so focused on in society and have been, and I include history in every chapter, really from our beginning is sort of what our relative position is on this ladder of hierarchy, as opposed to wanting security and freedom and opportunity for everybody. So I wanna push you on this a little bit, cause I think this is, yeah. uh, we talked about this the last time we spoke, you know, it's a funny intersection and in a way tension between what you and I write about, although very different, which is I have written a lot about how the win-win is a false paradigm and how actually a lot more things like fighting plutocracy in America are actually win-lose and should be win-lose. And to do right by most people, you actually do have to pull people down. And here you're making an argument that actually helping white people and helping people of color is the same fight, a, a different kind of win-win argument. 
what you just said puts an interesting nuance in it, which is that we're essentially asking white people to give up privilege, which is a real and powerful and enjoyable thing to access some deeper, more thorough justice. Can you talk about candid, because I feel like not a lot of people are honest with white people about what is gonna be asked of them over the next generation. What are the losses and what are the gains? That's right. So I think you and I basically agree in the sense that you spent your time, you know, your sort of journalistic travels hanging out with billionaires who thought that there would be no downside for them in a more just and high functioning world. I didn't have those conversations. So I I I envy you. I envy you. you. So I was sitting with, you know, with with white people who'd lost their houses in the financial crash and white people who, you know, lost their shot at a better job uh, and a failed organizing drive and white people who were thought they were, you know, breathing less polluted air than their neighbor, but, you know, ultimately we're all living under the same sky. So I'm talking about a vast working and middle class, the 95% of the country who only has upward to go in terms of a high functioning society. And that's where I think there is a win-win. I absolutely think that the people who break the rules in their favor are going to need to pay more. I happen to think that'll be a better society for them to live on, that they don't have to like, you know, circle out in a private spaceship in order to escape the devastation that <laughs> policies have wrought on the planet and on our neighborhoods. But you know, that's just me. But this question of what to the ordinary white person are we as racial justice advocates saying is the future that is becoming. And I think it's really important, right? And and so much of this book is about an invitation into a multiracial future that is not going to be a zero sum, is not going to mean worse things for them. And, And we have to be very clear that that zero sum mentality is so prevalent. It's so old, such an old belief from our founding. And it's so recycled and blasted, you know, through a bullhorn 24 seven from the media and the politicians that that most white Americans listen to, that we have to assume that's the thought. We have to assume that the thought is that progress for people of color and presence and, and demographic change in the majority minority country is a threat, is seen as a real threat. And so here's what I say to that idea. It's that ultimately, the world that we are making is one where the privileges that we often talk about in terms of white privilege, the privilege to not be afraid of the police, the privilege to have slightly better funded public schools in your neighborhood, the privilege to have slightly you know, higher rates of access to healthcare and less racism you know, when you're sitting on, uh, on the table are not privileges we wanna take away from white people as in we don't want them to experience those good things. We just want us to have them too. And it's not a zero sum. If the part of it that's important to you though, is the knowledge that it is some reflection of your innate better character and harder work that you have access to those privileges than somebody else, then yes, that will have to go away, right? But you can still not be afraid of the police. You can still see a good doctor. And in fact, if we had the majority of white people supporting universal healthcare or even the Affordable Care Act, that very modest reform, then we would be in a different place where we would all have better access to healthcare and the list goes on. An example that comes to mind um, that, 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 that is haunting for this is, do you remember when there started to be this phenomenon of business class only jets? Like they, instead of making it the front of the plane, they just made it business class the whole way. And no one, and, and they all failed. No one wanted to do it. 
because they realized and no, they hadn't figured this out until they had it, that, that business class is a positional good. Yeah. And a lot of the value of business class is walking in and seeing that and turning left and knowing yeah. you're not that. Yeah. And the whole plane is the nice thing. People didn't want the nice thing. Hopefully that's not what happens with the future of race in America. Um, I wanted to ask you about the pool. Um, it's, it's on the cover of the book, this, this parable of the drained swimming pool. Um, for people who don't know about the drained swimming pool, can you spin out the metaphor? And if you don't mind indulging me, include in it the private pools that resulted and how many people <laughs> had those, because that's a really important part of the metaphor for me. Yeah. So in the 19, late 1920s, really accelerating in the 30s and 40s, the country went on a nationwide building boom of public amenities, public libraries, public schools, obviously, public parks, uh, obviously, you know, hard infrastructure, bridges, roads, um, uh, and grand resort style swimming pools. And these are things that, you know, most of us don't even actually have a reference point for because they're pools that are public in the middle of town that have the capacity of over a thousand swimmers. They had like sandy beaches and multiple diving boards and like fountains. And they were this sort, sort of this really concrete manifestation of an ethos at that time of the sort of New Deal ethos that the government has a role in providing nice things and providing for a uniquely American high standard of living. And that was really represented and felt on a daily basis in the public pool. Um, and like so much of the social contract and the new deal of that period, um, it had an asterisks. And in many places across the country, not just in the segregated South, uh, those pools were for whites only, or there were you know, some for whites and some for black people. And what happened was in the 1950s and 60s, this sort of you know, organizing that, that burst onto the scene uh, in the early 60s as the civil rights movement began to empower black communities to sue and to advocate. And in fact, actually one of the things that spurred black communities into action was people, young people were being, were dying, were drowning in open water. Like um, a little boy in Baltimore um, who died, a little black boy named Tommy who died because he wanted to swim with his white friends, like two black kids and two white kids. And so they had to swim in the river because there was nowhere for them to swim together. And so as communities began to be forced to integrate their pools, many of them, again, not just in the Jim Crow South, opted instead of integrating their pools to drain them. They drained the public pool, which meant they drained out the water, they filled it in with dirt. In Montgomery, Alabama, which is a place I visited a couple of times for research for the book, they actually closed down the entire parks and recreation department of the city of Montgomery. They sold off the animals in the zoo and they kept it closed from 1959 for a decade. We were almost at 1970 before the good people of Montgomery, Alabama had a parks and recreation department that they could enjoy all to keep up the charade of white supremacy. Now, what did that mean? Obviously it meant that like so much of the New Deal and the sort of era of shared prosperity in the mid century that black people and black families never got a chance at it at all, right? It just sort of dried up and was drained before black people got access to it. Hadn't had it before and didn't get and it. And didn't get it again, right? Um, but what happened was you saw this boom of private pools. The backyard suburban pool really became a, 
you know, a sort of new de rigueur amenity. And you had these private swimming clubs, these membership only swimming clubs that were like a couple hundred dollar initiation fee and a couple hundred dollars a year. In Washington, D.C., after integration, over 120 of them cropped up in the ensuing years. These membership only swimming clubs. So that meant that what was once a public good then became a private amenity. And so, yes, you know, like so much, like our public schools, you can, as a white person, run and run and run to avoid what systemic racism has wrought on our public goods. And you can spend more and more of your resources buying it in a private way, but it's less efficient. It's ultimately worse for your children, for our society to do it that way instead of just sharing the pool. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, which is really interesting about the notion of the book as an invitation. Because I think one of the, the self-criticisms I would make, I think you and I, most of the people you, you and I live around in Brooklyn, share a, an enthusiasm for the multiracial America that's coming. Uh-huh. Uh, we want it to come as fast as possible. <laughs> if it could be here tomorrow, that would be much better. Uh, we'd pay for expedited shipping on that new America. <laughs> but I think a lot of us who want that new America to come yeah. can be a little bit unloving and unempathetic to how scared a lot of other people are about the onset of that country. Right. And I don't mean to suggest an iota of compromise about us getting there, going there, getting there as fast as possible. I mean to suggest how we choose to address people yeah. who are made scared by that as it is inexorably happening. Can you talk about the left activist community, people, people who you count in your network and friends, and in a way what we get wrong yeah. in our attitude to people who are scared by the future. Yeah. So I think a few things. One is that we both caricature people on the other side of our politics and we nonetheless minimize how prevalent the zero sum thinking is. So it's like, we can both say flippantly, well, they're just you know scared of a brown and black America, but we don't start our communications knowing that that's the case, right? I mean, to be effective at communicating, you actually have to be heard and you're only heard. I only hear you through the frames that I have to understand what you're saying. And so we don't tailor our way of speaking as if we want to actually be heard by people who have been relentlessly sold this zero sum story. And I'm very clear, um, and this is probably something that, uh, you know, is a, is a lesson for, from me that I have learned over the years that, that I share in the book is that I am much more interested in holding accountable the people who are selling racist ideas for their own profit than those who are desperate enough to buy them. And I think that we have to recognize where these zero sum degrading stereotypes come from, how much they are like the coin of the realm of conservative media and conservative politics. And it would be pretty difficult for someone steeped in that worldview who's also experiencing what they've experienced in their community, which is yes, actually a marked decline tens of thousands of factories lost, right? The loss of affordable college, the you know stagnation of the minimum wage. And I don't mean a caricature to say that 
people who believe this are all economically anxious, but the country is doing much worse than it was back when there was a segregated pool, right? You know, we, and that's my point really in the book. And, and in the final chapter, I go to Lewiston, Maine, which is a place that um, I think is really ground zero for the zero sum story. And it, it becomes clear to me that, you know, folks who believe the zero sum are just, in, they're believing what they've been told by people who look like them and, and, you know, claim to speak for their interests in politics and in the media. And they're just saying, it used to be easier to get by and get ahead. There used to be more good jobs. There used to be uh, like higher standard of living. There used to be less poverty and inequality. And what changed, it's true the Civil Rights Act. It's true, the Immigration Act of 1965. That's not the story. Those were not the villains in the story, but they were certainly characters who came from the wings. And what my formulation in The Sum of Us does is it says, instead of the reason why we as a country turned our back on the formula that built the white middle class was because you know black and brown people sort of stole that middle class life from them which is the right wing story. Mine is that the presence of these people whom white Americans had been taught to disdain and distrust created a vulnerability and a scapegoat and an opening for white people to turn away from that formula. It was actually white voters who decided to stop voting for the New Deal vision of the well-funded public pool and all of its attendant you know, resources in our, in our society, turned away from government, turned away from collective action, stopped voting for Democrats after Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, which they have still not done. The majority of white people have still not voted for a Democrat for president ever since then. And in a statistic that I found that shocked me, two thirds of white Americans believed in the late 1950s and early in up until 1960, that the government ought to guarantee a job to anyone who wanted one who couldn't find one in the private sector. What happened in the early 1960s that made You know, exactly. That? I'm like looking at the spreadsheet and I was like, Rrr. it went from nearly 70% to 35% between 60 and 64. So what happened, right? The March on Washington in 63 actually includes a job guarantee and a minimum income guarantee as part of the demands. Kennedy goes on a campaign around civil rights. And that was really the end of it. You started to see a massive rightward shift as um, my mentor, Ian Haney Lopez says, you know, the formula was fear and distrust people of color, hate the government for coddling people of color and getting on their side instead of on your side. And therefore, who are you supposed to trust? The market and the 1%. And that has really been the formula for the undermining of the political will for us to all have nice things. Um, I wanna ask you a couple questions about President Biden. You know, on this question of if one conceives of the very large challenge of this country right now, one of the challenges as being to talk white people through an extraordinary transition. Um, it feels like Uncle Joe, in some ways, is this uniquely suited figure um, mm -hmm. because he's credible in a whole bunch of different aspects of this conversation. Like he he's as credible a a Democrat could ever be to certain types of like working class whites with a lot of racism in, in yep. their communities. Um, but they, but they like Joe. Um, but he also served very loyally the first black president. He has, he's, he won because of black voters in the South. Um, what do you think he could do if he read your book um, 
to talk white people through this. Is there a white version of the Philly race speech that he gives to white America based on his own life, his own education to start the conversation you're trying to force? So I, you know, when you, when you, when you're a person like me who's worked in policy advocacy for so long, part of what you're doing is trying to do what Michael Lewis said and, and, and switch the way some people think about an issue that you feel has been misunderstood. I'm certainly doing that. But also one of the things I wanna do is change the way the, some of the more powerful people in political communications communicate about this issue. And I wanna be clear, I never in the book, nor hopefully in my talking about the book, want us to take our eye off the ball of the communities that are hit first and worst by systemic racism. Um, and in every single instance I found throughout all the examples in the book, healthcare, college affordability, environmental um, pollution, you know, the financial crisis, you know, there I tally up the costs to the whole country. I talk about the dysfunction. And then I also am very clear that black and brown and indigenous people, you know, are feeling these impacts first and worst. But it's also important for us to recognize that if we don't sort of end the sentence about the world we wanna create and address the zero sum framework head on, then we're just actually with all of our claims about white privilege and about racial equity and needing to treat people differently because of where they're situated, we're like whistling past the framework that people are sitting in. And so, and in fact, in worse, we're actually feeding it. And so I was really blown away to hear in President Biden's first speech on race when he um, signed a number of racial equity executive orders, he called out the zero sum explicitly. He said, for too long, we've had a narrow cramped view of progress in America. And he said, we've had this zero sum idea. And then he gave like five different colloquial Joe from Scrantonisms about how that you know, zero sum plays out. The, the idea that if I get a job, you know, you lose yours. The idea um, that like, you know, as I said, like a dollar in my pocket is a dollar out of yours. I haven't memorized what he said. Um, but then he made the case that, think about it, you know, if we deal with all these inequalities, basically if, if the people who are currently suffering from systemic racism have a better shot at a better life, you know, who can argue that that's not better for everyone? And he talked about the costs of racism to everyone. I think that's really important because we can't solve a problem without facing it and naming it. And think about like the knee jerk reaction among so many people to the phrase Black Lives Matter. That is like, well, does that mean white lives don't matter? You know, it's like, that's a clear zero sum. It's like, absolutely not. We do not mean that white people do not should fear the police because we want to not fear the police, right? Like, and yet it's such a knee-jerk reaction, this idea of the fixed quantity, and that goes back on into your question about the sort of lowered expectations. It's sort of like somebody has to be on the bottom. Somebody has to be treated like dirt. Somebody has to be the at the you know bottom of the social hierarchy. And so if it can't be black people, then does that mean it's gonna be us? Um, I think that's a an unconscious, although sometimes you know, you listen to dearly departed Rush Limbaugh, you listen to Tucker Carlson, like they, you know, they say the quiet part out loud. Um, but I think it's unconscious. And I think it's also, it's the late stage benefit of this drained pool politics when we feel like probably our best days are behind us as a country, you know, when we can't keep the lights on in Texas. 
you know, when we can't clean up the water in Flint, when we can't, with all the wealth and ingenuity that our country has, when we have the worst in the globe per capita pandemic response, it does feel like, you know, maybe it's actually just everybody for their own and there's no such thing as society. But that's that's not the vision that communities of color carry, like sociologically, when you look at it. Um, and I think that's not the vision of the country that we're becoming. I think it's not the vision that young people have. Um, and I think it's not the vision that is serving white Americans either. Uh, given that Joe Biden clearly read your book before signing <laughs> executive orders, clearly, you're not going to say it, but I mean, I'm going to say it. The, what, the coincidence is impossible. Um, if you could have one job in the Biden administration, what would it be? I don't want a job in the Biden administration on it. <laughs> um, I want to be out in the country talking to people about these ideas. I don't want to be sitting wow. in the old executive office building. Um, I, I, I mean, I, you know, that sounds flippant because obviously it would be my. I, I'm, I, I'm being told the audience is currently. You can't see this, but I'm, the audience is asking for you to join the cabinet. Are you available later tonight to be sworn in? <laughs> Um, no, I still have people to talk to about this book and this idea yeah. to pave the way to make it easier for an administration that has said that they want to put racial equity at the center. The reason why I sort of put down the spreadsheet and, you know, went out around the country was I know that everything that we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so this book is full of stories of ordinary people who really have either believed the zero sum and kept believing it and it cost them, or they laid it down and found what I began to call these solidarity dividends, these gains that you can unlock only through collective action across race, things that we simply can't achieve on our own. Um, and that's what's so inspiring. And that's, I think what we need more of is the storytelling about people who are nonetheless, despite January 6th, despite everything that's going on, creating their in their own little pocket of America, you know, the America that's coming. Um, now, in a minute, I am going to uh, start getting questions from all of you. I mean, I, I just want to say, given that this is four different geographies in the country, this is a little zero sum, contrary to the right. Like, I'm going to notice which region is sending the best questions, the most questions. <laughs> this is very much zero sum. So, so make your region proud by sending better questions. Um, and more abundant questions than the other regions. Um, I want to ask you a quick question about writing before we get to those questions. Not the substance, but the, but the process of writing. I'm always so curious because writing is one of these funny things where so many people are doing something that ends up looking quite identical in the finished product, but there's like no process sharing. And so we all come up with these like weird workarounds that look like they look kind of look like the electrical like wiring in India that I used to see like you just like the plumbing and, in my basement in Brooklyn yes exactly exactly um so what are some of the weird funny process things that no one knows about that you came up with to write this book well thank you for asking that it has been a real journey to go from you know running an organization to just me and my pen you know <laughs> me and the computer <laughs> um let's see I love a good breakfast. And so I, I lived in a bunch of different places over these past few years. I was pregnant um, when I quit my job to write the book. So I had my son sort of early on 
I remember talking, we, we, you and I went out to dinner, we went to dinner at your house, my husband and I, and you and Priya, your wife, and you guys have like 24 books between you. And Priya, I think was like maybe pregnant. She was like, you know, maternity leave is such a productive time. You can really just write your whole book in maternity leave. It's <laughs> like a first time mom, like, okay, all right, maternity leave, <laughs> write it in maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there were a lot of phases. Um, we left the country for a while. We moved to Medellin, Colombia, where my husband was doing research, and um, I had this great working space, co-working space. But the the like the sweet spot when I was living in Brooklyn and really in my jam, and Riaz, my son, had uh, childcare. I would you know get everything ready and do all the things at home, and then leave and go to this amazing black-owned restaurant in my neighborhood, in our neighborhood. Peaches, shrimp, and crab that miraculously is open at 10 a.m. every day during the week. You know, usually like you're open for brunch on the weekends, 10 a.m. every day during the week. I would sit at the corner seat at the bar. The guy who worked there, E, would like bring me my like huge breakfast, huge Southern breakfast that I would sort of eat slowly over the next, you know, hour and a half as I was typing. I would use the employee Wi Fi and I would just feel like, it was a treat. I was sitting at the bar and I was eating good food, but I was, you know, tearing my hair out about that. So where I wrote was really important to me. I always wanted to feel like I wasn't sort of depriving myself. Um, and what was the standard breakfast? Just, just oh yeah, uh, it's very good. It is um, scrambled eggs, a very delicious sausage, grits, and a piece of granola crusted French toast. So there was no shrimp or crab in the breakfast? No, no, not in the breakfast. It's just that the, would be the lunch sometimes, yeah. Got it. Um, so now we're gonna go to audience questions. Um, this question is from Kim Smith in Portland. We're keeping close track of which communities are racing ahead in the question, uh, question contest. <laughs> what can I do in my community to yeah. counteract the zero sum story? Right. Well, so this is such a good question. Thank you, Kim from Portland. You know, I think Portland's already doing a fair amount of it, right? I mean, um, this year, I mean, you know, this book could have been out last year. It maybe was due a year ago. And, and you know, I think this year of uprisings and consciousness raising and people moving into action in support of Black lives, um, 90 plus percent of the counties where there were Black Lives Matter protests were majority white counties. Um, certainly, you know, my experience where I was part of them in DC and then in Brooklyn, you know, most of the people out were white. This is, you know, a massive watershed moment in American history. Um, and, it, and it created a, a massive mental sort of public opinion shift on how seriously white people took you know, our claims uh, that systemic racism is a problem. The thing that is very revelatory, was very revelatory to me, was the places where there was the most enduring mental shift and power building to refill the pool, to unlock the solidarity dividend, were the places was, where there was organizing. This was not from like a great politician. This was not um, you know, because some wonderful, you know, policymaker introduced a bill, it was because people rolled up their sleeves, met with each other, planned, worked out their problems, put forward solutions, and got stuff done, and organized, and used their civic time out of their day in order to try to make their world a better place in fellowship with people across lines of race. I rem I'm reminded of this woman named Bridget, who was a Wendy's worker. Um, who's a white woman of Irish descent. And she told me, you know, when, when the fight for 15, an hour came to town, she was like, there, there's no way, there's no way. It was just insane, the idea that they would ever pay $15 to someone like me. 
And, but she went to the first meeting anyway. And she said, when I, when a Latina woman stood up and talked about her life, I saw myself in her, she said to me. And she said um, that she had believed the us versus them, you know, immigrant story about taking, you know, coming here and taking jobs and not paying taxes and causing crime. And, and then she said, but it was, it was really through organizing. It was through just meeting after work with people day after day and saying, you know what, we do deserve better that A, she lifted her own horizon for herself, right? Because if you're degrading people at the bottom of the social hierarchy through racist stereotypes and ideas, and you're right there alongside them, like what does that say about your belief about your own worth? Um, which I think is a real trap for the, for the white working class and white people in poverty. Um, but she also was able to see how she could win things that she had never won before from little things like, you know, taking a petition of demands to her boss and, you know, with, with everybody on the shift and saying, I need you to fix the grease trap, which was like something that they could never have done on their own. And they didn't win until they did on their own and did together um, to winning, you know, an increase in the minimum wage at the municipal level. And she said, you know, now I know it's not about us versus them, because as long as we're divided, she told me, we're conquered. Um, a great question from Mary, uh, geography not disclosed. For citizens whose trusted leaders have trumpeted the zero-sum way of thinking, do you think this way of framing could get through to them? Put another way, do you have a sense for ways to get these ideas to reach beyond citizens who are already interested in equality for equality's sake? Yeah. Uh, I would just translate it as you are competing with Fox News right now. <laughs> How do you win? Um, yeah, I mean, so I think I have to go on Fox News, which I will be doing in the in the coming weeks. Um, I used to go on all the time. Um, <clears throat> I also think that people who, you know, I was talking to someone earlier today who was like, I was given this, this is a white woman, she said, I was given this book by my black coworker, and I'm going to give it to my racist white uncle. And I'm like, yes, that is what I want, right? I want this book to have something for everyone. I want to empower, because you know, it's not about me or any one person. It's about as many people as possible being armed with stories that are compelling, possibly like the drained public pool, possibly like, you know, Bridget's story, whatever it is that that connects for you. It's been very interesting to see sort of which pieces are are really sticking with people as people you know finish the book and um, and react online? Um, you know, do, does it help you in those conversations? Does it help you remember not to skip over where people are and and have a little bit of compassion for the fact that they are believing what they've been told and sold, um, and that they're not actually profiting from that belief? But yes, the information apocalypse, as I call it, you know, the, the fracturing of information, the capture of social media by the right wing sort of disinformation and, and um, both foreign and domestic and, you know, QAnon and everything. It's, it's, it's just a whole next level of challenge for people who want to create a, a sense of common purpose in our society. You and I talked about this a little bit, and I think your answer was, was interesting and more nuanced than a lot of people's. For this Fox, and, it, and Fox is shorthand for several different outlets and companies, but the Fox problem, which you know is at the intersection of disinformation and hate for profit, and in some cases, you know, getting pretty close to incitement yeah. of violence. 
um, there's a kind of debate about whether there's only a marketplace remedy, which is try to convince people to not watch or try to convince advertisers to go, or whether there's any kind of regulatory legal frame, you know, uh, remedy, or whether that's just incredibly dangerous to even start thinking about. No, I don't think it's dangerous. I mean, I mean, I don't want to be flippant about like the risks of, of government censorship, but there does need to be a standard of fairness and veracity in the people who are part of, you know, the fourth estate of our society. And, you know, there's a reason why we used to have things like the fairness doctrine. There's a reason why we have such things as public media. It is a public interest. It is the way we learn about who we are and the ability of a handful of billionaires to just sort of design a plutocratic propaganda project and move their agenda across our airwaves and distort our democracy. It's just th that that is one of the things I do not think that every billionaire has a right to do. Um, whether it's Sinclair or, you know, Murdoch or any of them. And so I think it's really important that we do media reform, that we have the entirely unregulated right now space of, of social media, have some real innovative, you know, policymaking around bringing it into, you know, the sense of what it is, which is, you know, a, a piece of the public infrastructure um, that needs to be regulated. That can't be off limits. It can't, you, can't, you can't. I just, I don't think that the media landscape today with the shuttered local newspapers and the billionaire behemoths is compatible with a multiracial functioning democracy. Yeah, I'm also just personally not convinced that like saying that I, I guess we have to lose the Republic because Rupert Murdoch should be allowed to, you know, enjoy his first amendment protections, absolutely. It seems like a very bad deal. Um, you know, Heather, one of the things I, I love about your work and um, in the inverse often find frustrating watching a lot of the folks in progressive politics that you have advised and counseled and worked for one way or another is I often feel that a lot of those folks want to do a lot of the right things, but completely fail to paint paradise. It's, we have to do Medicare for all, we have to do student debt, we have to do this, we, and, and, and the litany is correct. Yeah. But there's very little narrative description yeah. about what the world would look like if we won, of what life yeah. would be like, of what people's marriages, how they would be different, about how your time with your children would be different. Yeah. And so people hear policy takeovers that scare them, and they don't hear the vision for their life. So I want to give you the chance to do the opposite because you're so good at it. If we listen to you in this book, <laughs> if we, after we listen to you, do the things you advocate, presidents are already listening to you, basing executive orders on your work. What would the world look like if we listened to you? You know, well, thank you, Anand, for that question. And as we wrap up, I, I do want to thank everybody for coming to this conversation. You know, it was important to me um, to, I did a lot of work on this cover, um, beautiful cover that I really love. The artist is David McConaughey, but it, it, I wanted the book to look like the world that we want. I wanted it to be an invitation to a something, a hope in, in a world unseen, right? The place where we actually are all swimming together. And I found so many glimpses of that in my journey, places where the basics, necessities of life, you know, a, 
affordable housing, clean air and clean water, the, you know, enough money and in the bank to meet your basic needs, but also have a shot at fulfilling your dreams, a sense of connection to our neighbors and a sense that our fates are linked and that no one is fighting alone um, in this society and that there's someone who has your back, not only when times get rough, but when it's time to, you know, embrace and, and be joyful. That society, and it's one where if you do that across lines of race, if that community I just described is one where there's someone who has a tie to every community on the globe, then what happens is, and this is what I really saw among the people who had kind of linked arms across race, was what happens is it reveals your common humanity, right? Like Joey and Ernest, a black guy and a white guy in Mississippi, you know, who, you know, with the the weight of history between them is as, is old and, and as painful as it gets. And yet they were both united in their desire for not just better jobs at the plant, but for a force that could act in the state house on behalf of working people, right? They met at the level of values. And so their connection was so much stronger than uh, you know, people who would meet just at the level of sort of like casual, um, affiliation based on something, you know, frankly, as shallow as, as skin color. And I think that world in which so much proximity reveals our common humanity is absolutely, you know, an America worth fighting for. Um, and it's an America where I think we will have refilled the pool, recognizing that not everybody is at the same depths, right? And then it's not a one size fits all in terms of what we'll need to get to that place. And I do think we need reparations. I do think we need um, a sense of targeted universalism to get us to the path of real comfort and security for all of our people. But just imagine, imagine what we can do if our, all of our best players are on the field. Like if we really are all contributing at our maximum value and have the freedom and aren't shackled by five-figure loan debt and all of this, just imagine what we could create in the next century, the problems we can solve. That's the world I see. It's definitely the world I glimpsed in writing The Some of Us. Um, and I think we're going to get there. That was Heather McGee in conversation with Anand Giridadas from a literary arts special event that took place in March 2021. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for the Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at colehahn.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.